a week from this upcoming Tuesday, there will be an election. And at this election, there will be people chosen. That's really what an election is. It's a choice. An election is a time where the people of a city or a county or a state or a nation come together and by their vote, a popular vote, they choose who will represent them. And I can assure you that whatever the results of a week from Tuesday, the results of that choice, the effect of that choice will be certain individuals saying, I have a mandate, I have been chosen. This is the effect of the choice of the people in me. In fact, who knows? We could have all the excitement of disputing actually who was chosen. Can't you wait uh, for this next election that we have? If you think I'm going to touch that subject with a 10-foot pole, you are sadly mistaken tonight. You'll have to go somewhere else. Because I want to talk about a different election. The election that is described in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. When Paul says to the church at Thessalonica that he had founded, mind you. This was the church that Paul had been with at their inception. Verse 4 says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, by this, he does not mean your choice of God. He's not looking at them and saying, Brethren, beloved, you know and I know that you chose God. No. He is saying, you and I both know, brethren, that God chose you. You were elected. There was an election that was made of you. And here's the most interesting point. We know it. Knowing, brethren, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I want to talk tonight about a message I'm going to title, Evidences of Election. Evidences of Election. Because what follows this verse 4 are the things that Paul is saying are settled proof to him that the Thessalonians were chosen of God. Notice, for example, verse 5. For our gospel. That idea is because. How do we know, brethren, beloved, your election of God? Because our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. On and on and on are the reasons that Paul knows that they were chosen of God. Now, we have touched on this subject some before, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election causes much confusion among some Christians. It has been the subject of endless argument among the people of God. But we, if we are to be biblical, we have to say that the doctrine of election is biblical. The doctrine that God chooses, that God makes an election, is unambiguously biblical. 
And it's not just here. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells to the, to the Christians, the saints that he is writing to, he says, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We read in Romans chapter 8 that those who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, a passage I understand that uh, the ladies among us have been studying in their Bible study, that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. That's the doctrine of election. Now, if you are struggling with this, I'm not going to be able to resolve this in any particular way where you're going to say, aha, because I don't think the Bible intends us to. Uh, It's been well said that the doctrine of election connects to God's foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? It's knowing in advance. We worship a God who is above time. God is not controlled by time. A day is with God as like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. We serve a God who is, in essence, today and yesterday and tomorrow. He's above it all. And so when we think of foreknowledge as, oh, God is sitting here today and he is thinking a thousand years ahead, we're kind of missing it. God's above time. He's not controlled by time. He experiences time in a different way than you and I do. And so, therefore, God's election is tied up with his foreknowledge. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And at that point... As Dr. Mark Minnick has said very helpfully, the tree goes underground at the subject of God's foreknowledge. How does God know in advance? Why does God know in advance and therefore choose? The Bible does not give a clear and unambiguous answer on that point. We simply say he does know and he does choose And his choice went back before the foundation of the world. And not only that, this doctrine of election is intended to be a great comfort to you who are Christians. It's intended to be your strength in times of difficulty and affliction. It's intended to be your life jacket when you are stranded out in the open ocean and you have the waves of difficulty crashing over your heads. That's where we see it in Scripture. We see um, the, the inspired authors of Scripture saying, don't you know God chose you? He knew you before the foundation of the world, before you were even born. It is to be a, a source of great stability for the difficulty of your life. This is why I'm convinced that those of us who do not identify as Reformed, who do not subscribe to the five points of Calvinism, should never let this doctrine simply drift away because we don't really totally understand it. We're we're, we're simply cutting off one of the legs of our great assurance and stability and security as Christians. It's intended for us to stand on and embrace and welcome And so we should stand on this truth. We should preach on it. We should say we believe it. And even if we may not be able to know exactly how God's foreknowledge works in this way, we should say confidently that if we are born again, we have been chosen by God. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world. 
But I don't want to talk tonight primarily on an explication of the doctrine of election. I want to stick with what Paul has to say about how we know that God's choice has been made. How can we know that, like these Thessalonians, this election has been made by God? And Paul is going to tell us in the life of this wonderful young church. Let's step back for just a few moments, as we normally do, and look at the context here. This is a book that Paul wrote to this church in a major city of Macedonia. Now, they may, that may not mean much to you today, but Macedonia was a, was a, a big Roman colony, and Thessalonica was its capital city. It was the primary city of that entire region of Macedonia. And we read about Macedonia and Achaia and other places that would be in the modern-day Middle East, perhaps Turkey or Asia Minor. Now, we see here in Macedonia that Paul has come to preach the gospel to these people. And what I'd like you to do now is to turn back to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, because scripture records how the gospel came to Thessalonica. It came through Paul, it came through Silas, and it came through Timothy. Acts chapter 17, and look with me in verse 1. Now when they, that is these believers, Paul and Silas and Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, this was his custom, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So Paul has come from Philippi, where he was. You remember the Philippian jailer who came to Christ and the persecution that Paul had received at Philippi. And now he travels all the way to Thessalonica and three Saturdays in a row, three Saturdays, Sabbath days in a row, he is going into the synagogue and he's preaching Christ to them. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preached unto you is Christ. He was telling them that this was the Messiah. This was the one they had been waiting for. And some of them believed Okay, so some Jewish Christians are brought out of the synagogue and consorted or, or communed with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, the kind of matriarchal set, not a few. So here's the makings of an early church, right? Thessalonica, you have some Jews that come from the synagogue. You have devout proselyte Greeks that are coming out as well, non-Jews, but nonetheless proselytes, and, and then of the chief women. This is the makings of this early church. But the Jews, verse 5, which believed not, moved with envy. They were envious of Paul and his early success took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Wow, that is a very, very rich kind of phrase there, don't you think? I would not like to be cl classified in that category. They gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they had found them out, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, those that have turned the world upside down are come hither. What an amazing statement about Paul. 
They've turned the world upside down. Now they're in Thessalonica, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Notice just a couple things here. One is that there was truly a small church that had been formed here. I don't mean a church in name. I mean of true, called-out, Christian-believing people. Notice that we don't know how long Paul was there. Some have suggested that since he had only been preaching there for three Sabbath days, that meant that he was only there for three or four weeks. I actually don't think so. Because you read in, in the book of 1 Thessalonians that Paul is telling them, you saw how I worked with my own hands among you and provided for myself. Unlikely that he would be appealing to that point if he'd only been there a couple weeks. I mean, there's not a lot you can see from only a couple weeks of example. I suspect that he had been there actually a little bit longer before the real uproar started and he was driven out of town effectively in a riot. But in any event, we see this gathered together people that Paul, by his personal witness with Silas and Timothy, had brought to Christ. He had been teaching them. And now he's going to write a letter to them. Now, when did Paul write this letter? We know that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. He was, spent a lot of time in that kind of neighboring province of Achaia. You remember that's called scripturally. You've got Macedonia and you've got Achaia. And Achaia, with a prominent city there, was Corinth. Paul went there. He wrote letters to that church, the church at Corinth. And so now Paul is at Corinth and he's writing to these Thessalonians to encourage them in their new faith as just young believers. Now, just a little bit of a history, just in case you're interested by it. Some scholars believe this was the very first epistle that Paul ever wrote. And your decision on that will be whether you believe that Galatians was in an early date. There's an early date to Galatians. If you believe Galatians was written in a certain time period in the late 40 ADs, Galatians was the first one. But others hold that Galatians was written a little later, and they believe that 1 Thessalonians was Paul's first epistle. Again, just a footnote, but is, as you're interested, you see some of the themes that were coming out even in the very early days of Paul's ministry writing. And Paul, on the basis of that short time that he had been there in Thessalonica, said to them, I know, we know that you are the elect of God. Look at verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, and Tim Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. We're praying for you, he says, remembering without ceasing. We're just constantly remembering your work of faith. Now stop there for just a minute. Friends, do you know that faith works? James 2 says if your faith doesn't work, it's not living faith. It's not real faith. Your work of faith, faith works. Notice what he says next. We remember your, what's next? Labor of love. Do you know that love labors? Or it's not real love. Faith works. Love labors. And notice what comes next. And we remember your patience of hope. 
Do you know what hope does? It endures. That's the very nature of hope, if it's real hope. Faith works, love labors, and, and hope endures. And he says, all of these are in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. I want to look at three evidences of their election. And what I want you to do tonight is, we're going to be just our nose deep in this chapter, okay? I hope you have your Bible. You either have it with you uh, in, in a book form or on your phone. We're just going to dig in. We're just going to dive in together. And I do this very intentionally because... Sometimes it's easy when we just skim across the top of the Bible and we just pluck something out almost like foam coming off the water. We just catch a little bit of it in our cup and we say, okay, good, I I got my insight. No, the word of God needs to be mined. It needs to be studied. And the way you study the Bible is you get into it and you try to understand what the author really is meaning And God forbid that here at this church, our sermons should be of the kind that are just skimming the top, where you barely even need to look down at your Bibles. Because ultimately, our goal is to teach you to do the same things in your Bible reading. To read and to break the Bible down in this same way when you're reading and when you're studying for yourself. So let's get into that habit tonight as well. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And verse 5 says, for or because our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. That word idea is conviction. Let's talk first evidence, the reality of the word. The first evidence of God's election that Paul has is the reality of the word. And the first thing that he has here in his mind is is a powerful entrance of the word. A powerful entrance of the word. Now, it would be one thing for us to say, when Paul says, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, you might say, whose assurance? Whose conviction? Your conviction, the Thessalonians? Or my conviction, Paul, the speaker? Do you know I think Paul is talking about his own assurance? His own conviction? His own power? his own sense of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying to them, I know that you're elect of God because of what I experienced when I was preaching the word among you. And friends, do you know it's true? You can talk to any pastor, anyone, any evangelist who's been used of God, and they know exactly what it is like to preach the word of God under a sense of their own conviction, their own assurance, their own sense of the power of the Holy Spirit working among them. I don't know really how to explain it to you other than that there are some times in which I am preaching and there is just a, I I cannot really explain it other than there's just a kind of confidence and conviction and assurance in what is being proclaimed that I just say that is of the Holy Spirit. There is just something. And in fact, probably you all have been in meetings before where you can say confidently in services where we say this word is not coming just in word. It's not coming just in the syntax that is being developed, in the kind of ideas that are being brought about. It's not just in word, but this is in power. It's got weight behind it. Now, you know all of that, what that means, I think, even in just your daily life, 
when something is only in word. I think of it like, um, this is a very, very trivial example, but uh, I think of it for myself when I've been playing basketball in the past. Um, you know, I, I like to play basketball, and one of the funniest things for me is identifying the guys who are all talk, all word, and no game. You go across that street to the kitty corner to PV Park some evening, and you'll hear a lot of chatter along the side of the court. And then one of those guys will get out, and he'll take his first shot, and you'll say, okay, I know you don't have any game. I know it's all word, and I know it's no power. I know it's no reality. And here's what Paul is saying. My word didn't come just in my talk. It came with the force of the Holy Spirit of God behind it. Again, think about this. Think about a guy who's got a chainsaw with a blade on it, and he's using the chainsaw like a saw, and he's just sawing away at a tree. And you're saying, you're using the blade, but what are you doing? And then he starts the engine up, and he starts revving it, and that thing goes to town, and you say, there's power. There is reality. There is force. And Paul said, how did I know that you guys were elected, that you were chosen of God? Because I knew the force, like a chainsaw, I was experiencing as my word was being proclaimed in Thessalonica. What an incredible thing that Paul is saying here. Not only that, notice not this just a powerful entrance, but a living example. Notice what he says in verse 5. As ye know what manner of men, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now what's he saying? The evidence that he had that they were chosen was not just what they spoke and experienced, but what they were enabled to be the examples that they were able to be to the Thessalonians. You say, what example was this? Well, look over to chapter 2, will you? Paul is going to come back to this. And he's going to talk about how they were enabled to live among the Thessalonians in this short period of time they were with them. Verse 1 says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, it was not weak, it was not frivolous or empty, but even after that we had suffered before, they were beaten in Philippi, they were imprisoned in Philippi, we were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, impurity, nor in guile, there was no trickery that we were playing on you, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust, entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men. That's not what our example was, being men-pleasers, trying to make friends. But we were pleasing God, which tries our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, we weren't just trying to tickle people's ears and tell them how good they were. We weren't using a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory. We weren't looking to be puffed up. Neither of you nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But listen to this. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse, a nursing mother is the idea, cherishes her children. We were like nursing moms with you. 
That's how gentle we treated you. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. We would have given our own souls for you because you were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, our hard work for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Paul is saying this. I was working night and day so you wouldn't have to support me. You saw me doing it. You saw me laboring long hours so that I wouldn't come getting any money from you. What's the point? Paul looked at them and said, you know full well that I was in it for you, not for me. In fact, we go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 5. As ye know what manner of men we were among you, what are the last three words? You can read it out. Verse 5, end of verse 5, as ye know what manner of men we were among you, what? For your sake, not mine. Paul knew, Paul could testify to their choice, of a God's choice of them, because he said, our word came to you in power, and we were enabled to be utterly self-denying in how we related to you. It wasn't about us, it was about you. It was all for your sake. Friends, what is our example? What is our biggest example as Christians as reflecting the character of our Lord being denying of ourselves? If any man will come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself. Let him say no to himself. How will you manifest to others like the Apostle Paul that you are a follower of Christ by your word only? No, by you living for the sake of others, not yourself. Living for the sake of your spouse, living for the sake of your children, living for the sake of those you're ministering to, living for others, not for yourself. Paul was enabled, he was empowered by God as a part of his dynamic, powerful ministry to the Thessalonian people to be self-denying and to be able to say to them, you saw it, you saw it, even in the way I worked with my own hands. So first of all, one evidence of election here was the reality of the word in the the Thessalonians' lives. But notice, secondly, the reception of the word. Go to verse 6. And ye became followers, literally imitators. Mimickers is the idea of this Greek word. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Now let's break this apart for just a minute. How did Paul know that they were chosen of God? Here's one thing, their relationship to the gospel. They received it, with unnatural joy. You see that? You received it in much affliction. What was the affliction? The affliction they were getting from the Jews. Remember the Jews were stirring people up, we read in Acts chapter 17, and ultimately driving Paul out of town. They were persecuting undoubtedly this fledgling Thessalonian church as well. And what does Paul say to them? You received it in, not in a, in a place of ease and comfort. You received it when you were getting persecuted, when you had people throwing rocks at you, so to speak, when you had people egging your house, again, so to speak. You were under much affliction. And yet not only did you receive the word, you received it with joy of the Holy Spirit. Friends, Paul knew from them that this was something real, not merely because they had joy. 
Joy standing alone is not necessarily an evidence of a born-again person. Oh, don't get me wrong. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. But turn back. Keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians 1 and turn back to Mark chapter 4. We've looked at this passage recently, but again, I want us to, to make sure we're understanding this point. Do you remember the parable of the soils? And do you remember what Jesus said about that individual who receives the soil on stony ground, or seed, I'm sorry, on stony ground? Listen to what he says, verse 16 of chapter 4. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, thin topsoil, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, joy, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. What happened? They received it with joy. They received it with gladness. What happened when affliction came up? Gone. The plant falls down dead. What does Paul say of them? It's not just that you received it with joy. It was the joy of the Holy Ghost that is proven in affliction. You were being persecuted and you were still against all odds rejoicing. Friends, who rejoices when they're getting persecuted? Who rejoices when they're under, as this word affliction means, it means getting pressed on. The idea, actually, that one picture, as I understand it, is of a grape getting squeezed until it bursts, like you're, like you're stamping out grapes for juice. You can imagine the affliction and the pressure of getting pushed on, squeezed from every side. And what's your response? What comes out of the toothpaste tube of your life? Joy. Unnatural, miraculous joy. Paul saw that and he said, God chose you. God chose you. How else would we explain the relationship to the gospel reception with this kind of unnatural joy? But not only that, notice he said it's his, their relation to him and to God. And ye became followers or imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word with this unnatural joy and your response was to line yourself up, to connect yourselves to us and to begin following us and doing exactly what we said. You know, you who have had kids, you see what kids do when they imitate. You see kids see you act in a certain way, speak in a certain way, and they just almost without even thinking, start doing the exact same thing. Why? Because that's what kids do. That's what people do who have the same DNA and that position of trust and love and connection to one another. And in the same way, Paul didn't hesitate to say to people, imitate me. Why? Because I know I'm imitating him. And when you're imitating me, you'll be imitating him. And Paul says to these people, I know that there was this election of God because not only did you receive the word, but you imitated me and you were imitating the Lord. So the, the evidence, the reality of the word in its force of proclamation and in its living example, its reception, the reception of the word in terms of how this unnatural joy revealed itself in the lives of these Thessalonians. But then thirdly, notice the resounding of the word. Look at verse 7. So that ye were examples to all that believe 
in Macedonia, that's the whole colony, right? The whole county area. And Achaia, the one over where Corinth was, the neighboring region. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. The idea here is of a trumpet. It's like a trumpet blast went out from Thessalonica. And this sounded out not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad. Listen to that. So that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Notice just a couple things. Who were they examples to? Will you look with me in verse number, um, number 8? I'm sorry, number 7. Look at, with me at verse 7. Who did Paul tell them they were examples to? Let's start here. Unbelievers or believers? Isn't that amazing? I would have thought Paul would have said, your example of turning to God was an example to unbelievers, and we're seeing everyone come to salvation because of this. He says, no, you were an example to believers. And friends, do you know there's something about the enthusiasm and the joy and the overflowing nature of young believers that can be a great example to older believers? There's kind of enthusiasm in a, in, a, in, a, in a just on fire nature for God that we who are perhaps more veteran believers should look at and say, wow, I can learn something from them. Maybe, maybe I've lost a little bit of that. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not experiencing that right now. They were examples to even other believers in Macedonia and Achaia. But what were they examples of? Look at this. Verse 8. The word of the Lord sounded out like a trumpet blast from you, but also your faith is what is spread abroad. Your reception of the word, even in affliction and joy. In fact, we see this in 2 Corinthians 8. You can just make a little, maybe a note in your Bible if you, to go study it on your own. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verses 1 through 4, Paul is using the example of the Macedonian churches to encourage the saints at Corinth to give generously. He said those Macedonian saints gave generously even in their poverty. Why don't you do the same thing? He's holding them out effectively as an example to them. They were an example of faith. And in what way? In what way was this example spreading out so that Paul and Silas didn't even need to say anything about them. In other words, the news about the church at Thessalonica had spread so fast and so far that Paul and Silas would come to a new church, to a new place, and they would say, oh yeah, we heard what's going on at Thessalonica. Look at verse 9. For they themselves show of us. Who's they? The people that Paul and Silas were talking to. It's like they're saying, oh yeah, we know exactly what God did. In that church, we know exactly how they've responded in faith and in joy, even in the midst of persecution. And Paul and Silas said, okay, you've already heard. You already know. We, we don't need to say anything about it. What was their example? Notice verse 9. How ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
They were an example of repentance, of complete repentance. And look at 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. They not only had completely renounced their idolatry, they had now looked with sincere and devoted love to Jesus Christ and say, we're waiting for you. They had an eye toward eternal things that overwhelmed even their focus on the present today. And in that, they were an example. They were an example to everyone who was in the region surrounding. Now, notice these three things. Paul could say to them, he could look at them and say, I know you're chosen of God. I know that God has made an election of you. Why? Because not only how the reality of the word was when we were proclaiming it, not only the reception of the word, the unnatural joy that it was producing in your life, but also the example, the resounding of the word, like a trumpet blast from you to the entire region surrounding. Evidences of God's election, of his choice of them. Now, what does this mean for us tonight, friends? Well, it should mean at least one thing for us, certainly. It means this. Do we long for the people of Minneapolis to receive the word of God like that? I mean, is it your hunger that the people in this city would have a reception of the word of God in evidence of God's election for them that would look like this? I sure hope so. I sure hope our desires, God, would this kind of forceful proclamation of your word go out from the, this church right here, from the corner of Park and Franklin, and from other gospel-preaching churches in this city that we might say of some people, we know that God chose you because we've seen it. We know that God made an election of you because it's obvious not just to us, but to this entire city. Friends, what are we praying for? What are we calling out to God for on our Wednesday evening prayer meetings? And when we gather on Saturday morning, are we saying, God, shake this city. Shake this city. May, your, may the evidences of your choices here in this city be obvious, not just to us, but to everyone. Do we long for that kind of reception of the word? Here's the second thing. Do we pray for that reality of the word as it goes out through the ministry of this church. It, it, it was eye-opening to me as I was reflecting on what Paul was saying here. He was saying our gospel went out with power. Do you know, friends, do you know I desperately need you to pray for me when I preach? Do you know I need you to pray for me from the time you get up in the morning coming to Sunday morning? May Pastor Peter, may his word be with power. May it not just be in word only this morning. May it not just be in word only this evening. May it come with the force of the Holy Spirit behind it. Do you know Paul regularly asked people to pray for him like that? Ephesians chapter 6. You pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may speak the word boldly as I ought to speak. You say, Paul, you were an amazing preacher. You preached all the time. Yes, he said, I still need utterance. I need boldness to proclaim the word of God. 
Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 to these same people. In verse 1, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course. The idea there is of running swiftly with no hindrance. May it, the word of the Lord run swiftly, listen to this, and be glorified even as it is with you. Thessalonians, you know that when the word came, it was going with free course and being glorified. So pray for us. Pray for us that it would be the same thing. Sunday school teachers, I hope that before you come to church on Sunday mornings, you're pleading with God, God, give your word free course this morning in my class. Bible studies, when you go out on Saturday morning into the community and knock on doors, God, I'm going out carrying your word. May your word have free course and be glorified this morning. Whenever you are able to proclaim the word of God, to tell others about him, may you be asking him, God, let, don't, don't let this just be in word. Let it be in power. Let it be with the force of the Holy Spirit behind it. Do we long for that kind of reception here in Minneapolis? Do we pray for the reality, the powerful reality of the word of God by the spirit of God? And thirdly, and I'll close with this, will we give ourselves to the same example of self-denial that Paul did? Will we give ourselves to that example of self-denial? Do you want the example of Jesus Christ to be powerful? It's got, it can't just come by your words. It's going to have to be by the way you and I live out our life by the enabling of the Holy Spirit to prioritize others more than ourselves. Do you want the word of God to have free course? Yes, pray. Yes, seek the power of the Holy Spirit and then live it out. Live it out by your compassion for the lost. Live it out by practically meeting the needs of those who are around you as God gives you ability. Live it out in your family by living for the needs of your spouse and living for the needs of your children over your own. Live it out. Paul could say to them, honestly, you know that I was in it for your sake. I wasn't in it for mine. And praise God, honestly, I can say this so honestly and so without any reservation, praise God for the many ones of you who are in this city day after day and they know that you're doing it for their sake, not yours. They know it and you're making a difference. Keep it up, continue, follow that same example by the enabling of the Holy Spirit and trust that God's work God's choices, God's election will be revealed as we seek his powerful spread, the powerful proclamation of the gospel combined with the self-denial of a life that is enabled by the Holy Spirit of God and modeling the example of Christ. Is there anything more wonderful than the knowledge that God has chosen you and that God has chosen others May we live that out here from this church. May we live it out by seeing the word faithfully and powerfully proclaimed, by seeing the word received with unnatural joy and seeing the resounding of the word throughout this city by the example of those whose lives have been powerfully changed.